Welcome to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. I'm your host, life and business coach, Kate Hawley. I work with entrepreneurs and creative change makers who value depth, impact, and purpose. Many of my clients are like me. They dream of creating prosperity through the value they provide, but they also want equity for others and sustainability for our planet. The scarcity mindset of our culture tells us that this dream isn't possible, that we are not enough, that we don't have enough, that there is not enough for everyone, and that's just the nature of reality. But really, it's just the nature of predatory capitalism. I'm glad you're here because we are going to prove that sad story false and make better meaning to build our future with. Here we go. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. I am here today with Emily Running. Emily is a dance artist and creative consultant, and also the founder and vision director of DanceWire PDX. Welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you today. And I know a little bit about DanceWire, but it might be helpful if you could introduce what is DanceWire, just so we, people can kind of place this into context. Sure. So I started DanceWire eight years ago in September of 2013, and it's really, in a short phrase, it is Portland's Dance Hub. And the thing that I always tell people is the best thing to think about is if you need anything dance-related in Portland, go to DanceWire, <laughs> right? So if there's anything yeah. dance-related that you have a question about or you're interested in or whatever, go to DanceWire. The, the longer answer to that is that we, on the one hand, serve the dance community, so dance artists and organizations, of which there are many, many, many in Portland. So I think we have a list of about... 450 artists and organizations wow. in Portland that are dance related. So don't think it's a small community. It is not. And so we serve artists in various ways, supporting their career development, supporting them advancing their organizations. We offer one-on-one -on -one consulting sessions or coaching sessions for dance artists. We have resources and materials that they can use. We're launching a co-working space for dance artists in particular. So if you kind of think of that as like our suite of career services for artists and organizations that are involved in dance. And then on the other side is the public facing. We're just getting more people involved in dance. So I think that in a lot of ways, there's a lot of stereotypes and myths and things that still exist within people about who can dance and what dance is or what the opportunities are. And we really want to just be an organization that invites people back. Get curious, give it a try, come back to dance. You could dance in your living room, you could go to a class, you could see a show, you could volunteer for a company, you could serve on the board, you could do, you know, like there's a lot of ways to be involved mm -hmm. in dance. Yeah. Well, I know that you had reached out to me after hearing my podcast a little bit mm -hmm. and wanted to connect on just this idea of scarcity mindset and particularly how it can tend to show up in the arts community and the nonprofit community and things. So we'll talk about that a little bit today, but before we get into it, I always like to ask people, 
how do you define scarcity mindset or what does that phrase mean to you when you hear it? So I, I am, I'm a dancer type person and a visual person and a person who thinks in terms of energy a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what I think about with scarcity is just the first thing that comes to mind is something that's invisible. So I really think about the invisible nature of it and that it is not a tangible thing that you hold in your hand. It is something invisible that affects your behavior and your choices and your mood and your relationships and Mm. all sorts of things. And you might not even know it exists. Yeah. I I really love that description. That resonates with me and how I tend to think of it too. A lot of times people put it into a really practical answer, but it isn't a practical thing. It's a, it's exactly as you describe. It's this energy, it's this invisible force. It's almost like a filter that changes how you see and experience everything in reality to a certain extent. And we tend to think of it like, oh, it's just rational. You know, there's either it's either scarce or it's not scarce, but we're, it, it doesn't actually show up in a clear, measurable, rational way most of the time. No, not at all. And and that's why it, it yeah, I think the other visual that I have is just kind of a tangled <laughs> web because you can't just turn it off. It's not a light switch, you know, turn off scarcity. You know, any of us that have experienced it ever in our lives have, have, and then you realize that it exists and then you have the challenge of figuring out how to extract it. And it isn't straightforward. You don't just remove it <laughs> from your mm-hmm. mindset. You you have to figure out where it's rooted and what it relates to and how it affects, again, how it affects your behaviors and your mood and your choices and your relationships. <laughs> and yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's a complex thing for sure. So... If we go back to the beginning of DanceWire for a minute, when you started it, you said 2013. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. I I always like to ask this when people start a big thing like that, because it's really scary. And I think a lot of people think about starting a thing and immediately they start thinking about all their scarcities. They think, well, I don't have enough money to do that. I don't have enough time to do that. I don't know the right people to do that, whatever their perceived scarcity is. Where was your mindset at when you started it? Like, how did you uh, work with that? Sure. So I I was thinking about this, just knowing I was going to be on the podcast. So my story with DanceWire is actually quite the the opposite. So I don't think that I inherently or naturally tend towards scarcity mindset. I think that, again, I'm a vision person and I see things that are not possible. I'm an artist. I see what is possible and what is not already there. So I think that that is my resting state. (laughs) That is how I operate most often and how I operated for most of my life. And then actually I went through a period of of real, true scarcity. Um, I had a massive surgery on my hip that wiped out all of my income. I had a scarcity of health, you know, for for a moment there. My identity, I didn't even know who I was at that point in time. And so the crazy thing is that at this lowest, really lowest point in my life up until that point, I was 30, this lowest point in my life, I was out looking for work and nobody was hiring me. And I said, 
why is nobody hiring me? I have skills. Like I can do things. <laughs> why is nobody giving me this chance to do that? And when I thought about the idea of DanceWire, it just felt right. And it I knew that it was, it aligned in a way that was um, meaningful to me. Again, I, I, I just felt that I could make it happen. So the first thing I did is go to a mentor. And I was also seeing a therapist at the time to, you know, unwind all of this stuff. And both of those people, uh, well, the mentor said, yes, exactly. You have everything that you need to start this. I, you know, I 100% support you in this. And I really expected them to say, no, it's too hard. Have you thought of this? And have you thought of that? And no, he was just like, yep, you can start it. And even my therapist said, you know, Emily, I wouldn't recommend this for a lot of people, but I actually think that taking a giant risk, even though here you are at this perceived lowest moment in your life, I actually think that that it is the right path and the right choice for you. So it was, I was not starting this out of any sort of abundance, but again, yeah. the, the, I don't know what it was. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's almost, I mean, it is interesting how sometimes genuine scarcity, here's the thing. When we're afraid of scarcity, we get really trapped, but living through actual scarcity isn't always as oppressive as you might think, because sometimes it's incredibly motivating and it actually shows us what our other resources are that we maybe weren't looking at because mm -hmm. maybe we didn't need them before, but now we do. So we're suddenly tapping into that untapped well. So it sounds like it kind of motivated you of like, well, nobody will hire me and here I am and I've lost this other path of income from dancing. And so, and where can I take all the resources that I've built up to this point and create something new out of them? Exactly. And again, I, I do think that I attribute that to being an artist. This is how we think. Yeah. This is how we understand the world. This is how we go about living in the world in the first place. Mm -hmm. We invent things that are not there. We look at a blank wall and we know what to do with it. You know, we're, we're not yeah. artists. So we look at an empty studio and we look at a body and we, okay, this is how it works. And so it wasn't really a stretch necessarily to create something that didn't exist. In fact, it's kind of a repetition in a pattern in my life and my trajectory. I think my mom says, you just have the best ability to reinvent yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, but I think, you know, that is one of the topics that I'm interested in thinking through or understanding even more is that that real scarcity versus that perceived scarcity and what what are the differences? I, I like how you just described it as the perceived scarcity can almost be more oppressive mm -hmm. than real scarcity where I guess in a way you have nowhere to go but up, right? And I think it, I feel like it has a lot to do with fear because, you know, when we're thinking about something that might be scary, it can be very paralyzing. But when we're actually in a scary moment, and this is not to romanticize or glorify scarcity or scary moments in our lives, but sometimes we find out that we're equipped to handle it, but we couldn't possibly have known that until we were in that situation. Right. Oh, for sure. And I, you know, I have a habit of looking at worst case scenario and it, it serves the function of really seeing what that might be and then kind of realizing, well, actually, that wouldn't potentially be so bad, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. 
it depends on what it is, but of course you you face your fear straight straight away and take a look at it yeah. and see what it's gonna feel like. Yeah, I think that a lot about say, let's just say like all of the things that happened during COVID. And I think people had a hundred million different experiences or more than that. <laughs> Everyone had their own experiences and not all of them were uh, good, obviously. But I think about, you know, we try so hard to be prepared for everything, but there are things, and, and there's things we could have done to obviously just culturally to have maybe been more prepared for a pandemic. But on an individual level, that wasn't in my life plan, but we all dealt with that as it was coming up and we, and resources were invented just to respond to that crisis as they always are, you know, it's like crisis happens. So we're responding to that specific problem. So you can't really anticipate the resources until you're in it and looking for them and inventing them in a way. Exactly. And this is where the, it becomes once again, so important to think about what we're actually talking about to name what we're actually talking about is it money is it time is it mm -hmm. joy is it you know you yeah. you can apply scarcity to anything and again i i was listening back to some of the other guests you've had on and certainly just passion for life is <laughs> a scarcity that some people with a lot of money have right mm -hmm. or there's a time scarcity so pre-pandemic we had a time scarcity everybody was too busy for everything in their lives and too busy to do this that or the next thing and then in the pandemic all we had was time abundance and then we changed a lot of things we just that's where the untangling right mm -hmm. so we didn't know we weren't paying attention. This is the invisible part again. We weren't paying yeah. attention to what, what that was. And we weren't really trying to think about an alternative. And then it was forced to happen. And then it it unwound so many people's beliefs and expectations. And this is where we're going through the great resignation. And so many things are happening. Mm -hmm. so many shifts are happening because people realize that they valued something that they forgot existed or that you know they didn't think was possible they're they're starting to say oh okay time is something that i actually do value yes absolutely i know so many people that that period of time created a contrast for them where they were able to see oh this is what my life looks like in this way even just getting health back i know a lot of people who just they got their health back and realized that health is one of those things there's no amount of money that is actually comparable to it. So yeah, we are definitely still navigating where are we landing now and how do we work with personal resources and also our collective resources in a new way. That's why I go back to, I see the opportunity in this time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Opportunity in this time. And I think a big part of the opportunity is that we're all thinking about it at the same time. There's a collective reckoning that's happening that I think has the possibility to make some real changes in a way that if you are individually struggling <laughs> with something and working really hard to get out of it or change mindset or something like that, but you're only doing it by yourself, it is a lot harder than, okay, everybody is kind of shifting and things are happening and more people are also on board with this thing that I'm try working really hard on. I think that that gives us a huge opportunity to make some significant and substantial changes that affect yeah. a lot of people and they collectively do work better. Totally. I wonder what is the vision 
behind your work, especially, I guess, your work at Dancewire, which is, it sounds like where a lot of your work is currently centered. When you think of the scarcity-free vision, the vision of like, if we could wave the magic wand and remove all the scarcity obstacles, what would be possible because of Dancewire's work? Okay, there might have been multiple questions in that. Let me (laughs) consider. Yeah, let's narrow it down because, okay, I want to know a bit about the vision of the organization, but not in like a submit your mission statement way, but really like when you started it, what were you thinking could be possible in the ultimate grand vision of what's possible? Yeah, and I think, I guess I will start answering that question by recognizing that it's going to be a pretty familiar thing for people to understand that artists are often told you're small, (laughs) get a real job. What you're doing may or may not have value. Sure. It's Mm -hmm. sweet. It's nice for you, but it's not really a thing (laughs) that you get to be an adult and do. It is not, that is not possible. And so I think a lot of people live with that. They live with that diminishing of something that is really valuable and really passionate for them and that they also happen to have really solid strength in. So there, there is a reason why artists are artists and mathematicians are mathematicians. Like it is a human strength and capacity and understanding of the world that is unique and that is valuable. And so I think dance in particular, that's my language. That's how I speak. That's how I express. That's how I understand the world. I see visually. I, I mean, it's just how I operate. And yet it, it so many turns in my life, I was kind of told directly or indirectly, well, that's nice, but it's not real or it's not valuable. And so I think a big part of what drives my work is starting to take away that cultural narrative and revise it and say, actually, this is valuable. Actually, this is something that would open up our world if people were able to really understand and see it and even just like make use of it, it would, it would expand, it would add to our world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think that's kind of the way I think about it. And I think, you know, I will use the pandemic as an example. I think we were bombarded with so much information and we were just overloaded with analyze this and think about that and look at those numbers. And our brains were exploding. You know, everybody Mm -hmm. was just in this, I can't, this shutdown zone. And yet on top of that, you want us to think through and analyze our feelings and emotions and understanding and process. And no, the body can process some of that, but we don't give it a chance to, and we don't give it an avenue to, and we don't, And more and more, you know, meditation and yoga, these are styles of work or these are areas of work that are really uh, coming up now. And I think that the world is maybe beginning to value a body-centered approach or a calming of the mind and a processing Mm -hmm. in a different way. But to me, my work is just very... (laughs) conceptual long-term working towards that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like when you were talking about that, how, you know, some of those practices are helping us value the body more. It's interesting from my perspective, having been in the performing arts and then also been a yoga teacher and had a yoga studio for a while, I did see a really distinct gap still there. (laughs) And the gap was around creativity and it was around self-expression and a willingness to actually explore the body rather than be told exactly what to do with your body. Mm-hmm. And that w- was really different because in my performing arts background, that's all we were doing was exploring our feelings and our and how we wanted to express and, and inventing it and, you know, being adaptable and improvisational with it. And it was sometimes very difficult for me to get yoga students to even take like 30 seconds to move in a free self-initiated way. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful that there are these practices, but I'm also aware of the gap in our culture that we have. Oh, it is still a huge missing resource. It's a huge missing piece of the education and what's valuable. And it is really hard to translate into the capitalistic values of our culture Because it doesn't have, even dance is even harder for me because I was a theater artist, which at least theater sometimes has more to hold on to from a linear language-based perspective, even though I made a lot of weird experimental theater, but (laughs) it still could ground. But like dance is often so abstract. And I remember I used to go to so many dance performances where something would change in my brain. Like my brain was in a much more unconscious Like I would just be getting these ideas out of nowhere, almost like dreaming, you know, and it's hard to describe to somebody. I love that we started this conversation with the invisibility of what we're talking about, because it's hard to describe why is that valuable? But guess what? Dancers don't use words. And that is why it's hard to describe, because it is hard for us to describe in words. Right. And that's not the point. So I challenge you and Mm -hmm. everyone in the audience, go and and this applies to any art or any so it could it could apply to theater it could apply to dance but especially to dance go not with the expectation that you're going to walk away having understood something new go mm-hmm. for the experience go and tell me if you watch an hour hour and a half show and you walk out the door, do you feel different? And you just said, I do, I feel, I can't describe it. I don't know what it is, but I feel (laughs) different. Well, just challenge yourself to that. And if you, and if you measure it that way, going to that show was a success for you, right? Like if that's your measurement and your success and your outcome, right? Like then it is. But if you are going and saying, did I understand what they were trying to say? you're not measuring it properly. Do you feel differently after this experience that you had and then just leave it there? Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. I think when I uh, first talked to you a couple of months ago, maybe I had just gotten back from Hawaii and then you were about to go and I could compare it to that and say, it's, it's actually hard to put into words what's valuable about a trip to Hawaii because it's an experience. It's a sensorial experience where you're changing on the cellular level that is not necessarily something yet you could use words that other people would understand and say oh it was fun or restful or it was inspiring right yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) but the actual experience is so much deeper and more profound and lives in your body in a new way Mm -hmm. and that's how I think dance and really art is it just it lives somewhere, it opens something up, it makes something possible. 
can I tell you a fun story about the most memorable performance that I saw? Yeah. So it was a show called Betrophenheit by a Canadian dance company, Kid Pivot. And it came to Portland. And so I went to see it and it was about addiction. And again, there was no narrative or language. It was movement and there was story told and there were characters that were identifiable. And so it wasn't just completely abstract movement, but there were no words. It wasn't narrated in any way. And at the end of the show, I held my hand up to my husband and I said, put your hand up. And he said, you're shaking. And we both looked at my hand and I say, look at my hand. I'm not shaking. And then I go out into the lobby and I see the audience services manager. And I was like, I walked up to her. I knew her. And I said, Chelsea, hold your hand up. And she held her hand up and she goes, you're shaking. And I said, look, I'm not shaking. It was such a powerful powerful performance that somebody else could feel the energetic shift in my body just by holding their hand up to me right like they oh. could they thought that I was shaking but my hand was not visibly shaking they just felt oh. the energy difference I mean that wow. just blew me away it blew me away because that I was just emitting this energy shift. It was such a powerful show. Mm -hmm. And here, not every show you see is going to have that effect on you. Let's be yeah. clear. Let's be honest. <laughs> but if that is an experience that you can possibly have, wow, that is amazing. And that is my dance wire pitch. That is something worth investing in, right? This is yeah. powerful and necessary, you know, the opportunity. It is an opportunity. Yes, 100%. Oh, I love that story. Yeah. And it, I bet that it even is happening, even when it's less obvious and less visible, right? Anytime, I think that's true for anytime I really take the time to engage in a any type of art experience. I never leave without some shift. Exactly. So, and that's the expectation we need to invite people to go in with. Just take 10 seconds to feel what's happening in your body before you walk in the door, 10 seconds on your way out to say, do I feel different? Bam. Mm -hmm. I had a completely productive hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if right. we need to be productive or if we need to, <laughs> you know, like if we need to assign it something, then do that. But yes. So let's talk a little bit about scarcity mindset as it pertains to the life of the artist and also maybe the life of the nonprofit, because those are two of the realms you're working in. How is it showing up for the people you're working with and seeing every day? And what has been helpful in shifting it? Sure. I mean, again, because it usually initially is invisible, the first thing that is helpful is identifying it. Right. And then you can start to untangle and unwind and note, catch yourself when, you know, when your mindset or when something is happening. So again, I guess I, I will draw it backwards to the previous part of our conversation where, you know, we've just been told you're never going to make any money. It's not even legitimate, <laughs> whatever. It's a nice little mm -hmm. spare time thing you do. 
And so I think that it's so deeply ingrained in artists. And some of them grow up in an artistic family and have been taught to value it their entire lives. And then, you know, I I see a dramatic difference between people who have had that value built in and the people who have not had that value built in. And then I think the secondary thing is when you're trying to make dance your career, which again, a lot of the things that we're doing is people who are trying to start a company, run a studio, be a dancer, do freelance work, you do this as a job. We do have to bring in money and we do have to bring in time and time and money are where are just kind of at the top of that heap for what people tend to be juggling because the passion is there the meaning in life is there like there's some other things that I think other people or professions might have more scarcity in but I think time and money is what it comes down to for dance artists and specifically people that I work with I talk them through how are we going to get you to your time and money balance that is appropriate for you because the goal isn't just make a bunch of money. There's, it's a, it's just a different balance, I think, than the nine to five job type balance. That balance that is the first thing that I think you need to identify and define for yourself to know where your deficit is, right? Yeah. So if you're actually thinking, and, and we focus so much on money. And again, if you're doing this as a career, you're going to focus a lot on money, but it's not, it's not that straightforward. Right. And I know this from, you know, coaching people that it tends to actually be an extremely custom experience. Everybody has a different balance and a different experience, but if are there any patterns that you could identify around what tends to be helpful? Let's just say let's take the the classic um maybe this isn't classic, maybe this is my projection, but the artist who's saying I all I want is to be able to do this with all of my time and all my energy and make all my money doing this. And it feels impossible. It feels like I'm never going to be able to do that. I imagine that's a story that Mm -hmm. maybe you've heard before. (laughs) Sure. I think that we as artists, we're inherently resourceful and yet we don't actually think about those assets that we have as assets and as tools that we can use. So when you think about fundraising, for example, you're an artist, you want to put on your show, whatever you start fundraising. And the first thing that people say is like, I don't know anybody with money. Mm -hmm. But then you think about who is in your network. Okay, let's think about who is in your network and who cares about what you do. You start defining it further and you start unraveling that And suddenly you realize, oh, well, I know this person who is a CEO of a company and I know that person. Oh, my parents, longtime friend and know this and know that. And then you start thinking about, oh, your network, your network is a huge resource that you're not paying attention to. You're just thinking very narrowly about who is the person with money. And let's look at, I mean, you're surrounded by people who who have skill sets, right? So, okay, you're going to need photographs taken for your show and you're going to want somebody to film it and you're going to need a space for it. What about those resources? Do you know anybody that takes pictures? I bet 100% of people know one person who takes like high quality yeah. pictures. Like it might not be the best dance photographer in town, but do you know somebody? Great. Ask them to take your picture one time for this one thing. You just yeah. eliminated the money that you needed to make. 
and they were happy to do it and happy to help you. So yeah, the kind of what is the big picture of scarcity versus an appropriate amount of resources to make your vision happen. When I wear my dance wire hat, I I talk to artists and I say this to them and I can I can help them realize who is in their network and I can talk about the value that they can add and I can do all of this stuff and I can see it from the outside. And then when I put my artist hat on, I fall back into those patterns mm -hmm. myself so easily of just like, oh, nobody's going to care about my work or, oh, <laughs> I don't know anybody or, oh, I don't know how to do this. I mean, it's so silly to me how I can immediately step into that helpless, I don't know, and not helpless, but that just mm -hmm. erase everything that I know that I know because it's personal and mm -hmm. I guess there's also that with artists it's so vulnerable you're putting mm -hmm. yourself out there so I'm working on a dance film right now that is my project my personal thing and so it feels scary to ask for money to support me I mean it's it's so personal and I feel yeah. I don't want to put people out and ask them for their time or I don't want to, I mean, all of those things just immediately when it's me, I just go right back into all of the same things that I advise artists, that's mental space that I advise artists not to be in. And I'm really mm -hmm. good at coaching them. And then for myself, I just need somebody to coach me too. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that's been a reality for that's true for all the coaches I know and me, right? Like I'm, I love working with entrepreneurs and business owners and it's so fun for me to hold that space for them. And being one myself means that yes, when I'm in it, it's the fear because you're the one, you're the one facing the danger, you know? And, and I think there it's worthwhile. I always like to also hold some attention to the aspect of this, that we can try our very best to shift our mindset and to be incredibly resourceful, and we are, right? And the fact remains that the arts are just severely underfunded and under-resourced in our culture. They're severely undervalued. It's a huge undertaking to try to summon your personal will to the extent that you can make up for that incredible cultural and economic deficit. And, and I say that not to make it like to send us all into under the rock. Actually, that's what motivates me. When I tap into that bigger picture, that's when I start to get a little bit of fight in me. And I start to be like, you know what? That is not okay. It's not okay. And I'm, yeah. and I want to get in the ring and I want to get in the arena and I want to get my hands dirty because I don't agree, you know? And it's not just about me. This is about all the people who are born to be artists who don't get to be artists because of some of these challenges that we face particularly in the United States, that doesn't mean other people don't face them, but I don't think people realize how much less resources there are for artists in the United States than there are in some other countries. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's that like, it's cool to be able to, to normalize those feelings too and say, oh yeah, every artist has those feelings and here's why. There are systemic reasons why we all have those feelings. <laughs> Exactly. And I think that that's where I come back to untangling the real scarcity versus the perceived scarcity. And then how do they relate to each other? Because I think mm -hmm. about, yes, arts are severely fun underfunded. That is true yeah. in America. And I will say again, dance is 
even probably at the lower end of funding for the various arts genres. So then we look at that and no wonder so many artists live in scarcity mentality. There is a legitimate element to it that I also don't exactly know how to overcome, you know, as Mm -hmm. a whole. And so you can see the big picture part of it, and then you can see the individual part of it. And that's what we have to figure out how to extract. What are the resources and things that you have the ability to control? And then what are the larger systemic things? And I think DanceWire is trying to conquer the larger systemic things. We are trying to create visibility for dance, visibility for artists, be the voice of, hey, this is problematic. This isn't working for us. Hey, you know what? Grant applications that require us to use a bunch of words aren't the way to go Mm. for us because that's not how we work. That's not our area Mm. of strength. And you're actually, you know, that is undercutting us yet again in a way. So that is, so that is the thing that Dancewire wants to address. And then you kind of go onto the micro level of the individual artist and okay, so you don't know Bill Gates, but maybe we can think about abundance within your own ability to control. Yeah. You had said when I sent you the intake form, you said this great idea of doing a thought experiment sure. of what would the world be like Favorite. if artists if artists didn't have any scarcity mentality, what would the world be like? So I love this idea. Let's just riff on it for a minute. Okay. What what do you envision when you think that thought experiment? What would the world be like if artists could just poof disappear all the scarcity mindset? I mean, I I just see innovation. I just see so much creative freedom. And I see ideas being able to flourish and be seen through to completion. I think it's another barrier that we have is we don't have the time or the money to really see our idea through to completion. And, and that's where art is a job. That is where it comes from is that you need that time and that ability. And you hear it with entrepreneurs all the time. Like I had to try my idea and it failed three times until it succeeded. And I had to Mm -hmm. learn from that. And I had to go back in time and figure what happened out. And I just think that the amount of time that we're given is just so like make a product that works really well, or, you know, make a performance that that sells all the tickets and make it in this amount of time and with this amount of money. So without that, without the constraints of time or money or, you know, feeling like we're not enough or that what we're offering isn't valuable, I just see so much brilliance and innovation coming forward. Yes. I love that. Yeah. I, I see the same thing. And I think the word that really comes forward for me is confidence. It's this kind of confident energy of, when you were talking about that follow through and and seeing the project through to completion, of course, you're right that there are time and money and energy resources that go into that. And some of those we can't control. But what I always come back to, because I'm a coach and I work with people's mindset, is how much do we control and how much energy do we waste doubting ourselves and doubting our own worthiness to exist in the world and to share Mm -hmm. our work with the world and to complete it or just 
saying, did I make a choice that other people are going to like? Or, you know, I know for myself in my creative process, the first stage is the easiest for me because that's when I'm just in that abundant energy of ideas and vision and innovation. But as it gets closer to when <laughs> completion for an artist looks like sharing it with people. And that is the scariest part because that's when you have to cross the threshold into believing enough in yourself and feeling that you are enough and feeling that your work is enough so that you can put it into the world. Exactly. And I think that that everybody can relate to if you are trying to act in a way that people like you, you're restricting how you act and you're trying to do things that maybe aren't naturally you and you're you're adjusting. Well, the same way with arts, if you're trying to create something that you think people are going to like, and then you're trying to predict what it's going to be and how it's going to work and whatever, you're still restricting. You're kind of trying to squeeze into something that might not be right. And so I think also it's really important that the confidence that you're talking about, be confident that whatever it is, it doesn't matter if people even like it or not necessarily, but but somebody will, somebody, it's just going to be their, the most brilliant thing that they never imagined. (laughs) Right. Right. Or it could be something that so deeply reflects their lived or their inner experience that, that because you were brave enough to share your Mm -hmm. inner experience and be vulnerable, they get to feel validated and affirmed. But I think the other aspect that I see in this thought experiment of a world where (laughs) artists don't have any scarcity mindset is that I see artists as leaders. They really are the culture makers and the leaders of a cultural conversation, or they should be, and they could be, and in many cases they are. But I think when I look at the world we're living in, it's not being led by artists. The cultural conversation is being dominated by, I I have some dirtier words to say about right now, how I'm feeling about where the cultural conversation is being dominated by people who certainly lack imagination or have applied the skill of their imagination to really dark visions of humanity that I do not support. So I guess I think there's the room for, yeah, it's almost like expanding to different ways of thinking and validating different ways of thinking and really appreciating them and seeing how they all have a role to play in solving the problems and creating the world that I think most of us actually want to live in. I agree. Yeah, I so I lived in Paris for a year and scientists and artists are the inventors, are the leaders, are the people that shape culture and that drive humanity forward in really meaningful and powerful ways. And there's no question. I mean, I would be sitting in a cafe and somebody would walk up to me and start talking to me and just I would say something about dance and they would be able to name off choreographers that they're familiar with and they know their artists, they value their artists and they pay their artists. (laughs) And so I, I have seen it happen. I have seen some of these things in action in a way that we don't have here. And I think you're exactly right that the confidence and the thought leaders and the innovators and the people who show us what the world could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, to hold some balance that it's not simply on artists to change the economics of all of this on their own. And I know it's a bigger project than a single mindset shift, but the more you can believe in that worthiness, right? Like there is not a reason why artists should assume they're going to be starving. It almost is like what would happen if we just started claiming that 
that is what it should be. That's what we deserve. <laughs> and let's figure out the way. Let's figure out the solution. Right. So I'm 40. I've been dancing for 35 years. I I have 35 years in my professional career. I I feel like I get to call myself a master of my work. Mm-hmm. I just think that experience and work and understanding and seeing how things operate and all of that is just highly valuable experience when it's reduced it's always reduced down to well how much money did you make (laughs) but I think the expertise and experience is something that I wish more artists understood about that their own selves is Mm -hmm. if you've been doing this for a long time you really have a unique mastery of something that no your average person doesn't have that they don't Mm -hmm. because you've spent 35 years working on it yeah you know and we it's uh, I it's yeah yeah I also you know I think a lot about being a lineage holder as an artist because especially the way that I studied I studied with sort of obscure threads through postmodern performance history and you know, the the graduate program I went to has closed a couple years ago. And there was a, a maybe decade in there of cohorts that studied and graduated through these lineages. And I think a lot about this is actually a cultural lineage that I hold and very few people in the world hold it. And if I can get, again, out of the ego sense of like, oh, am I good enough and whatever <laughs> into the oh, I really value this cultural lineage. I really value these practices and these trainings and everything that is embedded in them. And this is a way of passing forward something that it doesn't matter if anybody ever sees it as economically valuable. It is so valuable. Mm -hmm. And so it should be, you know, I think that of really of all art forms, right? They're all coming. These are things that have been passed down. They're like really human evolution and process. Everything that you've trained in and learned, this is an art form that's ancient. Yeah, absolutely. In many ways, art is one of those things that other professions change and other human activities change. I think artists are always going to be artists. Like they're, it is an enduring part mm-hmm. of humanity. Yeah, totally. I know that's one thing I, as much as I would like it to be more of a part of a flourishing economy, I can also rest assured that you know, some people will say theater is dead, but actually theater can never die. It's like the most enduring art form and will endure the collapse of civilization should that happen. <laughs> it just will, because it's one of those similar with dance and music, these things that are so fundamental to the human experience that as long as there are human beings, there will be these art forms and you don't need anything. You know, it doesn't matter if you're in a field, if you're standing on a rock, you've got yourself and that's all you need. Right. Exactly. And and that's why it just kind of blows my mind that, you know, some of the highest paid professions are work that only comes out of how our society is built, but it's not an essence of our humanity. Mm-hmm. It does have to do with what is useful to the capitalist machine. I mean, I, that's how I see it is like, if you're not making profits for a billionaire somewhere, then your work isn't valuable. And how is a dancer 
contributing to making profits for a billionaire somewhere. Like a handful of them are. A handful, you know, there's a few gigs you can get. But for the most part, that's not usually what's happening. And so there has to be a whole culture shift to seeing there is value in things that maybe don't work inside of the current economic system. And art has always been that. And education has always been that. And that is why those things have been subsidized or end up in the nonprofit realm or end up requiring funding, not through simply selling tickets, right? But it's become more and more something that needs a lot more education for people. So I guess I'll just say a moment of gratitude for the work that you're doing, because I see that you're doing a lot of that education piece and that outreach piece and that really just holding advocacy for the entire field and saying this field matters. And we are here to figure out how to make sure people today know how much this matters, even if maybe their arts education was gutted from their schools and they never saw a performance and maybe they never took a class and maybe they don't know this. So I really appreciate what you guys do. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And if people want to learn more about your work or follow you, what is the place that you want to direct them to? The Dancewire website for sure, dancewirepdx.org. And you can also follow our social media at dancewirepdx. And then, yeah, I mean, connecting with me personally, I also have a personal artist site, movementinspired.com. And so those are kind of the the places to find me. Okay, great. Well, I will put those links in the show notes as well. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time today. Thanks for sharing some insights and good strategies for people that want to untangle their artist scarcity. And I'm excited to see what comes next for Dancewire. Yeah. And thank you so much for this, you know, this podcast, because I think, as well it's it's great to have a resource to point people to <laughs> hey mm-hmm. listen to a few of these and just open up that invisible do you have scarcity mentality invisibly lurking <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in, in what you're doing let you know so i point people to you all the time as well oh thank you all right emily well thanks so much and i hope you have a great rest of your day today Okay, great. You too. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Space Beyond Scarce. If you enjoyed this episode, please go over to Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps out a new podcaster. Thank you.